3: Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a it for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right. So I know there's a lot of debate over whether to keep Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. But one thing there isn't much debate about is what kind of person Jackson was.
5: Yeah, I think you can sum it up with one
4: word. Terrible. I think you're probably (laughs) accurate on that. And he was obviously popular, but Uh he was also terrible and especially in his younger days. So let, let me just read you this little passage from Cormac McCarthy's wonderful secret lives of presidents. I know it's. Always been one of our favorites to turn to when reading about the presidents, but here's how he puts it. Stories of Jackson's hooliganism abound. When asked to organize the local dancing school's Christmas ball, he secretly invited two of the town's most experienced prostitutes, (laughs) causing a scandal. (laughs) On another occasion, he and his fellow miscreants demolished a local tavern, beginning with the glassware, advancing to the furniture— and concluding their soiree by setting the buildings ablaze. Oh, no. Boys will be boys, as Cormac (laughs) puts it. So he then continues, Jackson was also known to complete many of his wild nights with a practical joke or two. His favorite moving out houses to places they couldn't be found. I mean,
5: those are a mix of really awful things and, like, kind of funny things. They are kind of funny, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, burning a building down isn't that funny. But, right.
4: But uh, it is kind of weird that that's who ended up on our $20 bill, right? It is. I mean, you know, we tend to respect and revere our American presidents. And when people talk about Andrew Jackson, we talk about how he was a man of the people or, I don't know, how devoted he was to his wife mm-hmm. or you know, maybe counter the Trail of Tears stuff with how he adopted a Native American son. That's right. But it did make us wonder in some of these conversations, like, who are some of America's worst presidents? Who are the politicians who really squandered their opportunities in the Oval Office? And why aren't they getting any elementary schools named after them? I think that's the (laughs) goal after all. So that's what today's episode is all about. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Ticketer, And sitting on the other side of the soundproof glass, pasting tiny portraits, these tiny little portraits. I had to go over and look to see who it was. It's President Taft, Mango. And he's putting them (laughs) onto all of these pennies. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, of course... This is all part of Tristan's bigger effort, this ongoing effort to win a little bit more praise for Taft. I don't know exactly why he (laughs) wants to do this or why he's using pennies is kind of a mystery at this point.
5: Yeah, I mean, he explained the penny thing to me earlier, and uh, apparently he just always thought it was unfair that Lincoln gets the penny and the $5 bill. And while, you know, Taft seems sort of mediocre to me and he just has that story about the bathtub,
4: Tristan is really in awe of him. It is the best presidential bathtub (laughs) story. All right, well, so today's show is... It's all about trying to figure out who was America's worst president. And even though the presidency requires all kinds of different skills and abilities that are difficult to rank across the board, it's easy to spot the ones who led us into like economic disaster or maybe fan the flames of civil war. So in honor of President Taft's aggressively mediocre <laughs> legacy, what do you say we sling some mud on his behalf? And, and then let's actually talk about some of the real worst presidents in American history.
5: Well, I do think we should mention at the outset that we're sticking to the past year for today's show and focusing only on historical presidents. So this is more of a ridiculous armchair exercise rather than anything super
4: political. Nobody recent. <laughs>
5: Nobody. We didn't want to get into that. think of any recent yeah, presidents. Yeah, who,
4: yeah, who's been president in the past 30 years? We have no idea. So we're only talking about the past. Of course, we
5: will be using some surveys conducted by historians and other presidential authorities to guide this. And one we did look at was the 2018 Presidents and Executive Politics Presidential Great survey. It was conducted by the American Political Science Association, and it compiles the rankings of 170 different social science experts in presidential politics.
4: You know, the thing I like about these surveys is just how consistent the results tend to be, you know, over over previous years when you look at them. Like if you look at the one from, I guess it was four years ago, those bottom 10 presidents, I mean, they're pretty much the same names. They tend to move around a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, so while we can't claim to know the definitive ranking of all U.S. presidents, we, we can say with at least some level of certainty that none of these guys are going to be appearing on New Currency anytime soon.
5: Yeah. And like you said earlier, they're not going to get elementary schools or airports or probably not too many bobbleheads, uh, you know, in honor of them I either. I you could find a tap bobblehead <laughs> out there. I mean, I, I did find a William Henry Harrison trucker hat that everyone I
4: know now is uh, actually going to get for Christmas. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah you it's know, it's weird that you don't see William Henry Harrison's face on more like dorm room posters that seems like something like, <laughs> like we we might try to change that. We'll see. But I guess he does belong on this list since he, Died of pneumonia like 30 days after his inauguration. So, of course, he wasn't a great president at the very least.
5: Yeah, he didn't get a chance. But I, I do want to disagree with you on not one, but two of the points you just oh, wow. made. So, <laughs> for starters, we aren't sure it was pneumonia that did end the ninth president. So, I mean, the story does kind of fit. As we've talked before, you know, Harrison insisted on giving this 90-minute, 8,500-word inauguration speech on yeah. what was this very cold, very wet winter day. He didn't wear a hat. So, I mean, it, it tracks the that he caught a cold, and, and it eventually worsened into pneumonia. But, you know, actually, this is a side, but the, the doctor treated him for pneumonia, and the treatment at the time was uh, round-the-clock enemas and doses of opium. Oh, good God. <laughs> sounds
3: sound uh, awful. <laughs>
5: sounds horrible.
4: But so if it wasn't pneumonia, what, what, what killed him?
5: Yeah, so some modern scholars actually think that the real culprit was this deadly bacteria strain, which, uh, hmm. which probably came from all the night soil that had been dumped just a few blocks away from the White House.
4: Did you say night
5: soil? Yeah. So remember, we were talking about the 1840s here. So Washington, D.C. didn't have a sewer system yet. And instead, the city's daily dose of excrement was hauled away to this
4: nearby marsh every single evening, hence the term night soil. Oh, so you're saying this marsh was just down the street from the White House. So so maybe it was this bacteria from what, like all the fecal matter that was in the water
5: supply? Exactly. And the kind of gastrointestinal sickness that Harrison went through is commonly linked to at least two different bacteria that would have been found there. And the theory really starts to look convincing once you consider that both James Polk and Zachary Taylor also dealt with gastroenteritis while living in the White House, with Taylor even dying in office just like Harrison did.
4: All right, so I'll stand corrected on that, or at least potentially corrected. But I'm curious, what didn't you say there was one more thing you wanted to correct me on?
5: Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that Harrison didn't influence politics because he died so soon after taking office. Because when you think about it, he actually did some lasting damage to American politics. And what makes you say that? So William Henry Harrison's campaign was really the first to use food as a way to appeal to social and class differences in America. So for background, Harrison tried to portray himself as this, like, frontiersman who was tough as nails. And this was despite the fact that he was well-educated, came from this wealthy, distinguished Virginia family. But, you know, his campaign took out ads smartly that showed him in front of a log cabin. I mean, it was supposedly his log cabin. And Mm -hmm. uh, he also had this uh, big barrel of hard cider right out front. And the plan was to convince voters that Harrison was this man of the people, you know, He was trying to separate himself from the fat catalitus that Martin Van Buren could be seen as, or Vanny B, as you and I call him. that's what we call him, right? (laughs) So his campaign took to calling him the log cabin and hard cider candidate, and he was this man who lived and drank just like, I guess, the real people. Well, the plan worked, I guess, right? I mean, he, he got elected. Yeah, it, it wasn't much of a contest. Presidential candidates didn't even campaign for themselves prior to Harrison, and Van Buren was no exception. So he couldn't really push back on these elitist rumors. But uh, Harrison did an incredible job. Like, he uh, held these massive rallies town after town. Sometimes they had 60,000 people at him, oh, wow. and it was just, like, a ridiculous party. His supporters were rolling logs all over the place and <laughs> handing out hard cider. And he even had these uh, custom log cabin-shaped bottles made for the events. Like, it really marked the first time that a politician used food as a shorthand for social class.
4: Well, it makes me think about that phrase that sometimes people use that we often shudder at when somebody just talks about how they would vote based on who they'd rather have a beer with. Instead of their politics or policies. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess you can blame William Henry Harrison For that, Mm -hmm. if we think about it. So, yes, I will give him a mark against them for that. And all right, well, let's stick to the timeline for a minute and talk about Harrison's successor, who is, of course, John Tyler and another less than stellar president. And Tyler's an interesting case because he was actually the first person to ascend to the presidency from the vice presidency.
5: Yeah, and there weren't even rules in place for that kind of succession, right? Like the whole vice president rule wasn't in place until the 1960s when we added the 25th Amendment.
4: Yeah, that's right. So Tyler was really in unchartered territory, and this is where his questionable legacy starts to crop up. Because rather than continuing to act as vice president until Congress and the Supreme Court could figure out a solution, Tyler instead went out and quickly found a district judge, just some district judge to swear <laughs> him in. So effectively, John Tyler made himself president, though— I mean, I guess you could argue that the 25th Amendment would later vindicate his actions, even if that was, what, 120 years after the fact. (laughs) But, you know, thinking about this, putting him aside for just a second, I try not to speak ill of any first lady just on principle, but I've got to say that Julia Tyler really didn't do her husband any favors. Apparently she would hold these receptions at the White House where she would sit on a dais with a wreath of flowers on her head, and she would ask everyone in attendance to call her Mrs. Presidentress. I mean, I don't know anything about being a first lady, but if the president's legitimacy is in question, maybe don't do yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, maybe
5: avoid that. So, you know, even Tyler's own party didn't give him a pass on all this succession stuff. Like, I remember reading how they started calling Tyler his accidency, and <laughs> apparently every member of the Harrison-appointed cabinet resigned in protest. Wow,
4: that's impressive. Well, and Tyler really threw the Whig Party under the bus when he became president. In fact, he pretty much took the opposing position on every issue the party had been backing, Hmm. including the need for a national bank and whether or not states should be allowed to secede on account of slavery. Now, Tyler did manage to fight off early attempts to impeach him and made it through his single term. But by the time he died less than two decades later, he was considered a traitor by most people in Washington. And, you know, by that point, it wasn't even an exaggeration. Like, he had helped advocate for Virginia's secession, and he was all set to join the Confederate House of Representatives before his death kind of nixed those plans. I mean, you
5: don't want to heap more dirt on this guy's legacy, but I I was reading about Tyler in The Secret Lives of the U.S. Presidents, which, you know, I've got to say, I love Cormac O'Brien. He was on the show, nicest guy, and this book is so great. But he makes it sound like Tyler was kind of cowardly as well on top of everything else. Like, just listen to this quote. Tyler's estrangement from the Whig party was no joke. Angry mobs made a habit of showing up at the White House. Some even burned him in effigy. There were also plenty of bomb threats. Once, when an unmarked package arrived at the White House, a staff member was called to look at it. While Tyler hid behind a marble column, the servant proceeded to hack the parcel to pieces with a meat cleaver, only to reveal a dilapidated toy. In a unique act of pity, Congress passed Tyler's bill, which provided the first federally funded White House security.
4: All right, well, let's leave Tyler over there just kind of cowering behind his favorite marble column (laughs) and and talk about another pair of bad presidents who also followed right on each other's heels, and that's Zachary Taylor and Millard Fillmore.
5: Absolutely. But before we dive in, let's take a quick break.
3: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do
1: Every weekday,
0: we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more.
1: Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy.
0: I never
3: imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy.
2: Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.
4: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the most terrible, horrible, no good, very bad presidents in U.S. history, (laughs) or at least the ones historians like the least. Now, Speaking of which, the next guy on our list is the country's 12th president, and that was Zachary Taylor. And he's an interesting case because unlike John Tyler and other presidents who were disliked both in their own time and today, Zachary Taylor was actually pretty popular in his day.
5: Yeah, I mean, it kind of helps that he was only in office for, what, like a year, and people didn't have that much to form bad opinions about him, I guess.
4: It's true. He died pretty quickly. But, but you know, it wasn't just his brief time in office that gave people this rosy view of him. I mean, before becoming president in 1849, Taylor had already spent some 40 odd years fighting no less than four different wars for the U.S. Army. I mean, the guy was a war hero, had this career that stretched from you know the War of 1812 to the Mexican War. Had that nickname, old, rough, old and ready. rough and ready. I tried to get people to call me that, but <laughs> nobody's uh, nobody's sticking to it. And it seems to have been one of those nicknames that was actually pretty well earned in his case. So I'm guessing then, like, how does he wind up on this worst presidents list? Uh, it's partly because he spent such a brief time in office that he just didn't get much done, much like William Henry Harrison before him. But mm-hmm. what really makes Taylor unpopular now is actually all the stuff that made him popular in his day. For instance that that long military career of his the one that helped him get elected it actually includes some really brutal campaigns when you think about the Seminoles and the Chippewa tribes that effectively got were driven from their land and you know then there's Taylor's muddled stance on slavery you know on the one hand Taylor opposed the creation of new slave states and fought hard for the western territories to only be admitted as free states but on the other hand he was a slaveholder himself had multiple plantations and over eighty enslaved persons to his name.
5: So I'm curious, if you're a slave owner, like why would you engage in all this like anti-slavery rhetoric?
4: Well, I mean, it turns out Taylor wasn't morally opposed to slavery, and I guess that's pretty obvious mm-hmm. given his track record there. But he just recognized that there was growing opposition to the practice, and you know, these people needed to be catered to in order to avoid civil war. And Taylor was determined to preserve the Union, and this was by force if necessary. Like, there was one time in 1850 when a few Southern leaders started threatening secession, and Taylor was so angry about this, he swore he would personally lead the army against them if they went through it. Now, again, this was probably more out of his, you know, four decades of military service and wanting to be involved in those sorts of conflicts than it was any sort of personal conviction against slavery. So, I
5: mean, I I guess he wound up doing the right thing, but maybe for the wrong reasons, or at least not for all the right reasons. And it's easy to see how that kind of amoral thinking would diminish his standing in hindsight. Plus, you know, he didn't have a very dignified death.
4: All right, well, we've kind of beaten around the bush on this one, so I, I feel like you should go ahead and tell the story. Yeah,
5: I, I think we've probably talked about it a little before, but I love the details of this. So it was July 4th, 1850, and Taylor's been in office for a little over a year now, and he's due to appear at this big Independence Day party at the site of the future Washington Monument. And the problem is DC's in the middle of this blistering heat wave. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's also a bad outbreak of cholera and nobody's supposed to drink water or eat raw fruit without knowing exactly where it came from. But, you know, this is old rough and ready we're talking about, and he's still going to go to the event. So he sits through the speeches. He makes one of his own. And meanwhile, the whole time, he and everyone else are just getting baked in the sun, right? And so once it's over, he stumbles back to the White House. And he is thirsty. He immediately drinks all the water in sight. Then he proceeds to drink all the iced milk on hand. And then he wolfs down a whole bowl of cherries that someone left out in the kitchen. You know, he is not afraid of anything. And this does the trick. He feels satisfied, except that, you know, the next day he's doubled over with these stomach cramps. And then he starts displaying these symptoms of gastroenteritis. And four unpleasant days later, Taylor becomes the second president to die in office.
4: I mean, it does make you feel for the guy a little bit to think about the fact that he lived through four separate wars only to be taken out by, what, you said, ice milk and a bowl of cherries. cherries
5: yeah. I mean, I honestly think about this every summer when I'm looking at, like, a big bowl of cherries in the kitchen. And I'm always like, you know, a president died from drinking ice milk and too many cherries. And then, of course, I just scarf them down anyway because cherries are so delicious. you such a risk taker,
4: <laughs> Mango. I mean, it does feel like a cruel twist, of uh, even for this irredeemable racist, but because nobody is all bad. I, I do want to mention that President Taylor had a beloved pet. It was this old white horse named Old Whitey, creative name, <laughs> and he kept Old Whitey on the White House lawn. And when Taylor died, the horse was actually part of the funeral procession marching right there behind his master's coffin. I like that the nicest
5: thing you can say is that he had a horse that participated in his funeral. (laughs) Right, right, willingly. (laughs) So, you know, uh, it's still probably more than you could say for his successor, Millard Fillmore, who took over after Taylor died. And he became another president who no one really wanted you know, Fillmore did have one thing going for him over his predecessor. While uh, Taylor had the looks you'd expect from someone who would spent 40 years in combat, Fillmore was actually this super sharp dresser. He was good looking. In fact, uh, Queen Victoria thought so. After meeting him at court, she supposedly called him the handsomest man she'd ever met. <laughs>
4: So it sounds like he was sort of the opposite of Taylor, at least in terms of looks. But but what about his policy? Were they opposites in that regard, too?
5: Yeah, they kind of were. So remember how Taylor had been politically opposed to slavery but personally for it? Yeah. Well, Fillmore was the reverse of that. He claimed to be personally against the practice. And this actually might have come because his family was so poor when he was growing up that he was sold into indentured servitude as a kid. I think he learned to read by stealing books, and uh, eventually he did buy his way out. But it's strange because the main highlight of his whole tenure is getting the Compromise of 1850 passed, and this was something Taylor had opposed because he thought it was
4: too big a win for Southern slavers. All right, so, so why did Fillmore then support the Bills?
5: Well, Taylor had prevented secession during his brief term, but the South wasn't happy about his plan to admit only free states from then on. And this growing anger made Fillmore nervous that Southerners might move forward with secession or even that outright war might break out. So Fillmore backed the compromise out of fear more than anything else. And while the bills did do some good for the nation, like adding California to the Union as this free state and banning the slave trade in D.C., the negative outcomes sort of outweighed that. And this was partially through the addition of the Fugitive Slave Act, which obligated the federal government to return fugitive slaves to their masters. This was regardless of whether the states they were found in were free or not. And this was a massive, massive setback for abolitionists. And it actually furthered the political divide that was growing
4: in the country. So it sounds like he basically sold out his principles to try and keep the peace, which, I mean, that's a hard line to keep.
5: Yeah, he's another president whose reputation is only worsened as the years go by. And the cost of his decisions, you know, they start to look more and more unconscionable with time. And that shifting view on Fillmore is actually something that started as early as two decades after the compromise. So in 1870, in an edition of The New York Times, the paper wrote, quote, It was Fillmore's misfortune to see in slavery a political and not a moral question.
4: There's one part of Fillmore's tainted legacy that I do find pretty funny with all of the the kind of more sad stuff that you just mentioned, and that's the tongue-in-cheek club that was set to lampoon his ineffectiveness as president. You may have heard of this before, (laughs) but it's called the Millard Fillmore Society, and it actually wasn't formed until 1980. This, of course, is over a century after Fillmore died. So I'm curious, what kind of stuff did the society do? I mean, really important stuff, but probably what they were most known for was the annual award they would give out called the Medal of Mediocrity. And it was <laughs> handed out each January around the time of Fillmore's birthday, and it was as a way of honoring, quote, mediocrity to combat the rising tide of overachievers. <laughs> I was laughing at the list of, of winners here. So notable winners include Ed McMahon... <laughs> Prince Charles, Princess Diana, and Boy George for some reason? <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy George is a strange choice. Eh?
5: Yeah. It actually does remind me of that time uh, one of our friends brought a Boy George CD into our room in college and just started blasting it, and I I felt like he sang and danced through, like, Karma Chameleon, and I'll Tumble for You, and then some other song, and eventually he had to tap out because he had to acknowledge he couldn't keep up the enthusiasm for Boy George songs. Do do I need to acknowledge that that friend was me? (laughs) I wasn't going to say it, but that is true. I did did, did have a CD. But, you know, in the spirit of that club, I want to nominate another president for the Medal of Mediocre, And that's our 15th president, Mr. James Buchanan. And believe me, this one's a long time coming.
4: Oh, yeah, that's definitely a good pick. I mean, he was notoriously awful. But before we get into the reasons why, let's take one more quick break.
0: With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes.
4: Okay, Mango. So we have two bad presidents left to talk about. We've got James Buchanan and Andrew Johnson. And oddly enough, these are two that came immediately before and after President Lincoln, who, by the way, consistently tops the list of presidential rankings which is no surprise there. Mm-hmm. So you essentially have the best president in U.S. history bookended by two of the all-time worst.
5: <laughs> and, you know, Buchanan in particular is widely considered the worst of the worst. So, in fact, according to the Constitution Center, Buchanan's been in the bottom three of every major poll ranking U.S. presidents since 1948. <laughs> <That's> impressive. <laughs> I mean, he seems to be universally loathed, which is almost an achievement in itself, I guess. I feel like <laughs> it, yeah. I mean,
4: not a very good one, but yeah, it's, it's an achievement. And in some ways that level of hate is kind of surprising. I mean, just looking at Buchanan's pre-presidency resume, he was a successful lawyer. He served in both houses of Congress. He even served as Secretary of State for a time. And on the one hand, he had this reputation for being really exacting and a fussy kind of guy. And that might explain why he was also a lifelong bachelor and, and the only one to serve as president. Now, president Polk once said Buchanan acted like, quote, an old maid, and even his own campaign manager described him as a sort of masculine misfibble. and I don't really know exactly what that means, but it, it doesn't sound good, I don't think. Yeah, I have no idea what a
5: misfibble is, but uh, <laughs> I mean, th- there were rumors that he was gay, and I, I know he and his vice president shared a house, and people called them Aunt Nancy and Miss Fancy, so there might have been some prejudices there, yeah. especially during that time period, but it's also pretty clear how much of a pain he could be. Like, apparently, Buchanan once rejected a payment for more than $15,000 because it was off by 10 cents, <laughs> and, you know, if that wasn't annoying enough, he was also this giant snoop. Um, he made his niece act as his first lady and live with him in the White House. But then he'd open all her mail and, and send it along to her, written like, uh, open by mistake, just scrawled across the envelope. And I, I mean, maybe you buy that once or twice, but
4: every single letter is a lot. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm guessing at some point his niece caught on to this.
5: <laughs> yeah. She actually started hiding all her correspondence in these empty butter jugs that her friends would carry in and out of the White House kitchen, which is. <laughs> sounds so obvious, you know, but uh, uh, amazingly, Buchanan never caught onto the scheme.
4: No, because, I mean, he was too busy pulling off his own schemes. I mean, his administration was one of the most corrupt in history. Just as an example, Buchanan pushed hard for the adoption of Lecompton Constitution, which was a proposed constitution for Kansas that would have allowed only male citizens to vote, while at the same time forbidding free blacks from living in the state at all. Wow. And to try to get this passed, Buchanan and his supporters offered cash incentives to anyone willing to vote their way. All told, the price of these payoffs is estimated at more than $30,000, which is more like a million dollars when you adjust for inflation.
5: That's crazy. And meanwhile, the country was falling apart around him while he and his buddies were cashing in. The southern threat of secession was growing, and rather than do anything to counter it, he kind just stood by and watched, and not only was he ineffective, but he was also two-faced. Like, before the election, he'd spoken out against slavery as this indefensible evil. But then in his inauguration speech, he dismissed the practice as, quote— Happily, a matter of but little practical importance. And, you know, once in office, he actually furthered the spread of slavery by allowing it in these Western territories. He uh, he backed the Dred Scott decision. Uh, that's the one that denied citizenship to black residents. And he practically paved the way for the Civil War.
4: Yeah, that's definitely true. And, you know, it seems like most of the country recognized the damage that he was doing because, you know, you fast forward to the next election and it went to a starkly different candidate. And that, mm-hmm. of course, was Lincoln. But that transition wasn't a smooth one at all. You know, you've got Lincoln's victory in November of 1860. Now That prompted seven southern states to secede from the Union and form the Confederacy. And this all happened on Buchanan's watch. Now, Buchanan claimed there was nothing he could do to stop this. Here's how he puts it. He says, "It's beyond the power of any president, no matter what may be his own political proclivities, to restore peace and harmony among the states." wisely limited and restrained, as is his power under our Constitution and laws. He alone can accomplish but little for good or for evil on such a momentous question.
5: I mean, that's really pathetic, and it just sounds like such a cop-out. Yeah. I mean, if the union was falling apart, the president should be doing something, right? And, you would think. And uh, Zachary Taylor, if he was on the case, he would have hopped on his horse and fought off the seceders himself. That's right.
4: <laughs> I mean, even if he did own 80-something slaves. <laughs> well, but Buchanan just sat on his hands until leaving office the next year, and that left Lincoln to deal with the fallout of Buchanan's inaction. And of course, less than a month later, the Civil War had begun.
5: Which is you know, clearly why historians don't like Buchanan.
4: Well, and the wildest part is that Buchanan maintained until his dying day that he was only performing his constitutional duty. He believed that history would ultimately remember him fondly for what he had done, but of course, he was pretty wrong about that.
5: Yeah, I'll say. And while Lincoln's term provided this all-too-brief reprieve from weak leadership— his assassination landed the country right back in the hands of the morally bankrupt. And I mean, this is a bummer to say, because on paper, Andrew Johnson sounds pretty impressive. Like, more than any other president, Johnson really came from nothing. His family didn't own any land. His uh, father died when he was only three. Most of his childhood was spent doing hard labor as a tailor's apprentice. Yeah. In his teens, Johnson moved from North Carolina to Tennessee. He opened his own tailor shop. And, you know, this wasn't easy either. Apparently, um, Johnson made the trip with his family, and everything they owned— it it was all stuffed into a two-wheeled cart, and was pulled through the mountains by a blind pony.
4: I mean, of course, the <laughs> pony had to be blind because, you know, you've got this impoverished family trekking through the mountains, <laughs> two-wheeled cart, like, none of that's pitiful enough to so be a blind pony. But I do know what you mean, though, about Johnson being a pretty endearing character, at least prior to taking office. and. He was the only Southern senator to keep his seat in Congress after secession. And that loyalty to the union is ultimately why Lincoln chose him as his running mate when he was up for reelection.
5: Yeah, but sadly, all that loyalty disappeared after Lincoln was shot and Johnson assumed the presidency. As soon as he took office, he gave amnesty to Confederates and allowed them to elect new government officials who quickly passed these Black Codes. It was, you know, aimed at oppressing these newly freed slaves. He also vetoed bills that sought to protect Black Americans, including the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. You know, much of the nation was really shocked to see Johnson undermining and almost straight up undoing so much of what Lincoln had fought and died for. In fact, Johnson was often heckled at public appearances during his presidency, and He's just the type of guy who just could not resist. Mm-hmm. He, he just joined in shouting back. And, and this one time things got so heated that he actually claimed that God struck down Lincoln on purpose so he could be president. I mean, that's insane. And, of course, that went over about as well as you'd imagine.
4: All right. So let's see. Just looking at his resume here. Johnson mocked his dead predecessor, rolled back racial progress in America, basically paved the way for the Jim Crow laws. So it's not— a surprise, really, that he was the first president to be impeached. Yeah, and nearly convicted, too. In the end,
5: the proceedings failed by just one vote, and Johnson was able to complete his term. But, you know, it was crystal clear by then that he wouldn't be getting a second term. Yeah. And, of course, the, the thing I always remember about Johnson was that he was so ostracized at the end of his term that he'd just sit in his bedroom where he'd befriended the mice there. Like, <laughs> he'd feed them and watch them like they were, you know, his own reality TV program. But I do think he was a little lonely.
4: I mean, it is nice to see that most of these bad presidents we've talked about come from the first half of America's history. I mean, there are a few obvious exceptions from the last hundred years or so.
5: Yeah. I mean, there's bound to be a few hiccups here and there. But examining the failings of past leaders should make us more adept at choosing new ones. Or, you know, at least that's the hope.
4: Yeah, but I'm not ready to let these guys off the hook just yet. So why don't we dedicate today's fact off to the blunders of a few more presidents from that worst of list?
3: (laughs)
5: So one of the things on William Henry Harrison's platform was that if he was elected president, he'd only serve one term. And it's the only campaign promise he actually carried out.
4: That's pretty bad. All right. Well, one of Andrew Jackson's favorite ways to unwind was apparently dueling, which I guess makes sense for someone who enjoyed drinking and brawling as much (laughs) as he did. He apparently fought in over 100 duels in his life. <laughs> that's terrible. I think that's over 100 more duels than you've competed in in your that's life. That's
5: absolutely true. So, uh, you know, Warren Harding loved poker so much that he assembled a poker cabinet to drink whiskey and play with him. You know, which, of course, is a little weird since he claimed to be tremendously in support of prohibition on the campaign trail. But, you know, he did have this cabinet. and And once he actually bet this entire box of priceless White House china in a poker game— And he lost it.
4: Wow, that's pretty rough. (laughs) And there are plenty of other reasons to dislike Harding, too. I mean, he was anti-immigrant, anti-working with other nations. And, of course, the knock on him was that his administration was so corrupt that while he was playing poker— all his friends were there plundering the U.S. Treasury. Yeah,
5: I feel like it's one of those things where they couldn't trace it completely up to him, but they could trace it right around him, right. you know, with a teapot dome and all that. I mean, he was also a ridiculous and blatant philanderer, so he had plenty of problems. And And he eventually declared, quote, I'm not fit for this office and should never have been here.
4: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, here's one that you might like. Then, So Nixon was so enamored with making the White House this more grand place and He actually commissioned these pompous uniforms for the White House police force to wear. It was just to make it, I guess, a little bit more like Buckingham Palace. (laughs) And the uniform included gold embroidery and these ridiculously tall military caps. But it was so ridiculous that he just got made fun of in the press. What's funny about this is that instead of just, like, burning or throwing away the uniforms, he sold them, and this was to a high school band in Iowa.
5: (laughs) (laughs) So you know who seemed like terrible people to work for? The Hoovers. (laughs) Like, Herbert and his wife devised the system so they never had to see the White House staff. When they rang a bell three times, it meant the president or his wife were walking down the hall, and the staff was just required to jump into the nearest closet to be out of sight. And if the staff was outside, they were actually supposed to hide behind a shrub, like just (laughs) jump behind
4: a shrub. (laughs) I like that they were given this instruction. I mean, I feel like my Nixon fact might have been funnier, but having to jump in a closet or over a hedge because your boss is coming, Uh I mean, that sounds... (laughs) pretty terrible. So I, I feel like maybe you should win today's prize.
5: That sounds great.
4: All right. Well, this has been a fun one. Now, I'm sure that we forgot a lot of great facts, and we always love hearing facts from you. So if you have some fun facts about some of history's worst presidents, or maybe you need to even inform us who's been president in the past 30 years, because we, we, we have no idea. <laughs> so we've only been focusing on the past, but we love hearing those from you. You can always email us part-time genius at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. thanks again for listening part-time genius is a production of how stuff works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand
5: Tristan McNeil does the editing
4: thing Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy mixy sound thing
5: (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing